My guests today on Coastal Front are looking to secure seats in the upcoming Vancouver municipal election as mayor and city councillors under the NPA. I welcome mayoral candidate Fred Harding, city councillor candidates Cinnamon Bayani, did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Great. And Morning Lee. Fred has been a leader throughout his career and life. He began his distinguished 30-year career in the police services in England where he worked as a detective with the Metropolitan Police Service for London for 13 years before moving to Vancouver to raise his children. Fred is also a former West Vancouver police officer, having worked on Indigenous issues and many high-profile cases, including the Robert Picton case. Cinnamon has also been a strong force in government for over 25 years, where she currently works as a regulatory compliance officer with the Department of Finance. Cinnamon is a mother, wife, and active volunteer in the Vancouver community where she advocates for Indigenous rights and holds a criminology degree from SFU and is a current Masters of Arts candidate at York University. Last but not least is Morning, a successful entrepreneur, business consultant, and father who embodies a driven personality. Morning immigrated to Canada in 2004 with just $2,000 in his pocket. Working odd jobs in his early years, by 2006, some of Morning's companies became successful, and in 2015, he moved into real estate. Like our previous guests, we've asked Fred, Cinnamon, and Morning to pick two topics from which we will discuss for this upcoming election. The three of you have chosen to focus on affordable housing and public safety, with a bit of a focus on the downtown east side. And the third topic will be no shock to our, our listeners and viewers around financial accountability. So I want to thank all three of you for taking the time today to come on to Coastal Front. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you. Now, before we get started with those hot topics, which tend to be the favorites for most of the mayoral and uh, city council candidates, so it'll be a nice comparison for our listeners and viewers to, to, to pine on, I, I would like to start with an introduction of the three of you in your own words. So maybe we can start with yourself, Fred, and then after we've got the personal introductions, maybe we can hear a bit more about <clears throat> the NPA or Nonpartisan Association. For those of us those people who are listening who are not familiar with the NPA. Yeah. Okay, well, first of all, I, I want to thank you and your, your uh, entire team for the invitation to come and, and speak. And I am unbelievably proud and honored to be sitting with uh, my two uh, council uh, colleagues here who are, who are looking to, to go into council because you can see from their backgrounds, we have an incredible team. Uh, I've got this opportunity to talk about myself for uh, uh, 60 seconds or so, so I'll tell you is, um, this is about leadership. This, this election is going to be on crime, safety, public order, uh, public safety, and leadership, and the lack of leadership that we've seen. So my background, as you say, is actually over 30 years as a police officer. I joined in 1984, so uh, most people in this you room- You were 12 years old. Yeah, when I was 12, <laughs> you know, certainly. I, I, I was a teenager, <laughs> believe it or not, when I joined the police. And, um, and then, I, as, as you say, I, I went on. So in, in England, I, I was the guy that they called in to deal with some with an estate in East London uh, that was riven with race, hate, crime, and drug and addiction issues. And, and I did some uh, pretty um, interesting things there that, that then led me working into uh, national security. So I was in frontline terrorism and at working out of Scotland Yard. So I left uh, policing in England in 1997 because I, I got married and I came here to raise a family. My wife is a Canadian, New Zealand. And, uh, and I started, and I, my first place was on Commercial Drive, and I, it wasn't long after that I, 
I actually didn't think I'd be a cop again, but I got back into the policing in West Vancouver Police Department. And I spent uh, 18 years there. And of course, as you've already mentioned, I covered indigenous policing and I did some uh, created, I was the instigator of the Integrated First Nations Police Unit. And that was a, and still remains to be a, a unit that covers multiple jurisdictions, multiple reserves, and it's, com it's driven by the community. So it's actually a co community consultative group drives their strategy, which is about communicating with the greater public in Vancouver is what we, what we need to do. And uh, I led the major crimes for a short time. Um, and as you say, I worked on uh, the Picton investigation and I was um, a proud recipient of the British Columbia's highest award for valor. Uh, so I, I oh, know that I'm prepared to put my life on the line where it matters. So uh, it's, not just about, it's not just about showboating. This is a very serious position that I'm looking for. And uh, as we've seen is that there's been such a distinct lack of leadership and I'm going to say it's that lack of leadership in the last four years that's led the city into the situation we're in right now. Rampant crime, uh, assaults, race-hate crime. We have tent encampments on the downtown east side. All of this needs to be dealt with and dealt with sensitively right, and, and compassionately, but we can deal with it because I'll bring in some leadership that the city's been lacking. So thank you okay. for my time. Well, that's a good introduction. Cinnamon, how about yourself? Yes, thank you for having me and thank you to your team. Um, so a little bit about me, I am from Métis Heritage, um, born in Winnipeg, raised in Langley, and I've lived in Vancouver for the past 18 years um, on the east side near Commercial Drive. Um, my work background starts with Canada Border Services Agency back when I was also 12. And um, <laughs> I work for FinTrack now uh, for the past 18 years. So I'm a regulatory compliance officer uh, dealing with anti-money laundering, which we know is a big uh, issue in Vancouver these days with real estate. and. Uh, also anti-terrorist financing. Um, so I have a strong policy and procedure background. Um, in the last two years, I've been working on my master's of law degree, which is in banking and financial law through York University. I graduate in two weeks, so I I'm <laughs> completed. I just have to go to the ceremony, which I'm really excited to do. And I'm active uh, as a volunteer in our community, which I have been for many, many years. Um, one was through the Vancouver Foundation, which I reviewed small grants, which was things like block parties and bringing the community together and unique projects. And I also got to meet other people in the community that I wouldn't normally meet. So, you know, every day you go to work and you have your colleagues, you see them on a regular basis, and then you see your neighbors who, who lives directly around you. And what I loved about being on this committee is that it was focused on downtown east side, Strathcona, um, and commercial drive area. So I got to meet people from all walks of life, and they got to know me too. Um, I also am on two city committees uh, with the city of Vancouver. One is the uh, Urban Indigenous uh, People's Advisory Committee, and also the Civic Asset Naming Committee, um, which names and renames uh, civic assets like streets and statues and things like that. Um, so I'm excited to be a candidate uh, with MPA for city council and I hope to bring my strong uh, career background, my, my work uh, background, education experience and just love for my community and I want to build trust, build relationships and make things happen at City Hall. Wow, great introduction. Wow. Quite, quite the resume there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. How do you how do you one up that one? Norm? I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, first of all, I'm very glad to be here, and uh, you guys are very professional. Your whole team, and thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. 
And so uh, I'm actually I'm, I'm one investor and a business consultant right now. But just like what you said, in 2004, and I came to Vancouver and uh, only with $2,000. The same day after I paid the rent and deposit, I only got $200 in my pocket. And so I worked at many kind of jobs, like a, a delivery guy, a truck driver, and all the cleaners, and a computer engineer, all these kind of things. And then, you know, I opened up many businesses as well, like a, a moving company, shipping company, and a trading company, and furniture store with the money I made in Vancouver, not from China, right? So actually, uh, the thing is, and uh, in 2004, and I was a visitor here, and I did not decide to move to Canada. But you know, after I, s I saw the beautiful Vancouver, and uh, I, s I said to myself, why, why don't I just move to Vancouver? And, but before I make the decision, I ask people, where is the dark side of Vancouver? Where is the bad location of Vancouver? People told me, Hastings. Okay, I went to Hastings and in 2004. But the problem is, I walked, I walked there, and uh, I spent a few hours there, it's totally acceptable. It's good. It's not a problem. It's okay. So I decided to move to Vancouver. So that's why in 2018, and uh, I, you know, not that year, suddenly, right? So I found out Vancouver, Hastings, is totally not acceptable. I cannot stand for that anymore. I must stand up. I must do something. I cannot rely on some other people and to make the Vancouver down like that. It's my home. It's my Vancouver, mm -hmm. and my kids, my kids call it hometown. I call China hometown, but my kids call Vancouver hometown. Yeah. So I must stand up. So that's why in 2018, and I stood up and to run the Vancouver City Councilor. Unfortunately, and I, I was not successful. So that's why, and now, four years later, take a look at what's going on in yeah. Vancouver. It's getting better. No, no, it's worse. getting worse yeah. and yeah. worse, and the homeless people everywhere. I don't blame on homeless people. I blame on the city hall. I blame on the people running the city. Sure. So that's the problem. So that's why I'm running with the excellent team and the sentiment and Fred, and we are running together because I want to be the one to resolve the problem. Okay. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's. I can hear the passion in your voice. That's uh, very authentic. So. We're gonna, and we're gonna get into these issues over the downtown east yeah. side. So thanks for that introduction, Morning. Um, maybe let's go back to the NPA itself. Um, for those, again, those listeners and viewers who may not be familiar with the Nonpartisan Association, yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about the party itself. Yeah, so the party's been around since 1937. It's the oldest political party in Vancouver. And the NPA has actually had 11 mayors in its history. And uh, the, the last NPA mayor was Sam Sullivan. And uh, a, form, a former Coastal Front guest, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and I, I had He's the privilege of, of sitting with Sam just two, two weeks ago, uh, and I, it was the first time we'd been introduced. And he's, uh, you know, he's an inspirational figure. Yeah. And, and I think most of us, uh, those of us who are able to remember him at the uh, handover of the Olympics when he put the flag onto his chair, I was able to tell him what that meant to me when I was watching it on TV. It was just, it was a staggering moment, right? And it was, uh, but... What we're, what we're lacking, and as, well, as I look back and I'm thinking now to that moment, I get chills when, when I think about it, is 
where are our inspirational leaders? Where are the people that, we, that inspire us and, and people that we would walk through fire behind, right? Because we don't see anybody that inspires anything. They don't inspire civic leadership. They don't inspire our people to stand up, our, our youth to, to move forward, or people to get engaged. They actually dispel people from the idea of civic politics. But to go back to the NPA, um, there, there are many of your listeners, I believe, will, will know the NPA has had a lot of upheaval. Uh, we lost some councillors, but I'm going to say this. Every single party goes through renewal, and every single party, no matter if it's in the UK, if it's in federal Canada, uh, it's in Africa, Germany, uh, Sweden, they all go through upheaval. And so people are saying, look, I'm, I'm disappointed with what happened. But the reality is, when you look at where we are, when you look at the candidates that we have, when you look at how strong we are on this bench that we're putting forward now, it is probably the strongest um, a team of candidates and council candidates and uh, everybody from the parks board and the school board that the NPA's had in 25 years. And I, and I mean that sincerely. When people look at how strong our bench is, it's really remarkable. Mm -hmm. So anybody who had concerns about the NPA because we, we, we changed and we lost some people, the new blood is 10 times better, like 10 times better. And so I, take, I urge them to take a second look and, uh, and give us a call. Okay, well that's good, that's a good introduction. We do want to get into these topics, and we'll yeah. do that in one moment. I, I will just mention that uh, we did have John Cooper mm. on uh, as our one of our mayoral candidates, and and I really was impressed by the guy, uh, and I, I, I had a chance to speak to him. We were going to publish that interview uh, 20 minutes before we were publishing. He gave us a call and said, hold off, there's some news coming, and then 20 minutes later he made this announcement he was going to step down from running for mayor. I had a chance to talk to him one-on-one -on -one personally and, and you know, to make sure that clear the error. It was completely his decision yes. and his decision alone. And it just, it, from what I got from him, it really, his, he just didn't, his heart wasn't in it anymore. Yeah. It wasn't for any kind of other conspiracy reasons or that someone else influenced him. This man clearly doesn't get influenced by other people. Yeah. Um, you've now stepped into this role. Talk for just a quick moment, Fred, about how did that unfold? How did it go from, and I don't even know, were you running for council and then you no, jumped it? No, no. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm, I can't I'm remember gonna, where you were yeah, at. No, yeah, no problem. It's just, just that everybody knows. I was actually in Beijing when I got the call. Okay. And uh, yeah, so uh, they, 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 they dug deep and they, they went wide and, and, and called me. And the conversation that I had was, look, John's gone. And I'd actually, I was following it and I, and I read it in, in, the, in the press, in the media when I was in, in Beijing. And, and I'll talk about being in Beijing in a second because it's important so that people understand the context of why I was there and what I was doing. Um, and uh, the, the question was, look, they've looked around and then they need somebody that can beat Kennedy. And we're in a, uh, as we've already said, we're in a public safety uh, election. This is going to be about crime and public safety. And I, of course, I knew some people because I ran in the last election for a different party. And I had relationships that I built and they, they saw me and they saw my strengths in, in the last election. And that's why they came to me and asked me would I do it. I didn't immediately say yes. I had to consult, obviously, with my wife. I had to look and, and I wanted to see what kind of team they had. Uh, I wanted to know that they, there was money in the bank, that, that there was a, a campaign team behind them that could actually win this. And uh, the campaign team is second to none. And as, I, as I've already talked about the depth of the bench behind, 
is the best. Okay, so, so it wasn't too difficult of a decision for you to make after you've done your research. After I did, after I did some research, I think it was seventy-two hours that I actually I looked and I had conversations forward and backward because I, I had it was a big decision to leave. I had a growing business in in Beijing. Yeah, so maybe and, why don't you speak to that? You mentioned that there was significance about the fact that you were in Beijing. Yeah, so, so. I, I want to talk about the significance of being in Beijing. People are saying, "Hey, look, you know, this, they call me the parachute candidate, right?" So uh, I was in Beijing um, simply. Vancouver is where I raised my family, and I, I wanted people to know is that I actually have never given up my residency of Vancouver. I pay my taxes here. I just had to go and pay the extra taxes yesterday. Uh, my car is registered here. My, my medical is here. My bank is here. So I'd never given up. So when I was running the last uh, campaign election, my wife became very sick. And, um, and during the campaign, she, she was more and more uh, unwell. Uh, the election day was on October 20th, and she left the country on the... She saw a lot of doctors during the campaign, and on the 23rd, she flew back to China to get some more medical attention because it wasn't helping. I brought her back to Canada in um, early 2019 to see more uh, doctors. We saw 10 doctors and still couldn't work it out, and we went back to China again to get more medical attention. By the time we worked out what it was, she was stage 4 cancer, and she was on her way out. So, um, and I'm pleased to say, uh, she's obviously, as, as you know from our earlier conversation, she's back on her feet, but um, my wife has really struggled to get her health back. Um, and it, was, it has been, as anybody knows who's gone through the, the cancer journey, it is arduous, it's tragic, it is heart-wrenching, breaking, financially crippling, mm -hmm. and, and we're comfortable, right? But it's, um, it, it is quite the journey. But right. My wife's back on her feet. Uh, if people saw her, they would never know that she was so sick, but she came back from the absolute brink of death. Wow. That's yeah. why I was in China. Well, I'm happy for you for that yeah, story. That's a nice story. Uh, and you're right, because most people diagnosed with stage four cancer is generally a death sentence it at is that a point. Sentence, and so yeah. uh, I can't imagine the journey you went through, but it's yeah. nice to hear that she's back. Um, but you're back here. You're living in Vancouver. Yeah. You're running for mayor candidate. Let's, let's jump into our first topic, which is around housing. This has been a hot topic. Almost everybody coming in here has had a conversation about it. Um, and so maybe I'll start by saying it seems like every politician I've interviewed in the last three years, since we four years since we started Coastal Front, from my very first uh, city council uh, interview with Adrian Carr, I've had David Eby on the show twice, um, Pierre Polyev, they've all come to the table saying, I've got the solution for the affordable housing crisis that we are dealing with. But yet we continue to see issues um, with people being able to afford to live and, and, and work in Vancouver. So where does the MPA come into this? Like, how, how are you guys going to have something different from what we've seen in the last four years? If, if you don't mind, if I may just take the, the lead on this question mm -hmm. and, and say, <clears throat> look, we, our housing strategy was released yesterday. But there's something, I, and I want to really talk about it because the housing is critical. Because housing affordability is not just for people trying to get on the on the first ladder. Housing affordability is people in Vancouver making a hundred thousand dollars a year, and they're sharing apartments with two and three people, or they're paying five or six thousand dollars a year in rent. One of the biggest issues that we're facing in housing housing affordability is there's we've got a breach of trust between the public, the developers and the politicians, and I blame the politicians for this, as we've just seen from this so-called uh, donors list that was found, and it's being attributed to uh, Kennedy Stewart's party, is we've seen 
uh, politicians um, berate and belittle and use the uh, use developers the bad guys of the city the greedy people who are making their profits on the backs of everybody else and so their base uh, was eating this up and then they're disappointed to find that actually the developers are the ones who are funding the people who are you know <laughs> putting them out there as the straw men so part of our policy now we have to fix the broken system that that's the first part so this this leads to how are we in this crisis because the city's become so toxic for developers is that I think as most people know they're actually beginning to leave so instead of building more they're building less developers who were building uh, property uh, probably had eight starts four years ago got zero starts they're moving to Seattle Arizona they're out of the out of the business Burnaby in North Vancouver yeah I mean, just to comment on this for a second Fred yeah I, I I have tried my hardest for the last year I know most of the top developers in the city, and I've had uh, candid conversations with them on the phone, trying to get them on a coastal front, maybe even as a panel. Not one of them come on, want to come on record. Um, and they've told me this because they don't want to be blacklisted by city council for calling out the mayor and city councillors for not approving projects that are trying to get done. Um, so I can tell you, we have builders who want to build. Those same builders have told me what you've just said. So I'm not, we didn't discuss this before. Nope, You're bringing this up the first time. Just make sure everybody's understood. And these are conversations I've had with these builders who've said to me, we've, we've typically built a portfolio of land. They bought, they acquire land. The, the big, the big uh, builders are still building, but so, you know, so the mid-sized and small-sized builders, they've stopped buying land in Vancouver. Whatever they had in their inventory, they either sold it off or they built and then they never renewed it. They're renewing in Burnaby, they're renewing in West End, North Vancouver, North and they're renewing places like, they've gone to Edmonton. Because they said, look, you know, I can get a four-story, five-story, all apartment, uh, you know, all rental apartment building built in Edmonton. I can get it from, from date of acquisition of that land to completion and people housed there in less than two years. Yep. And in Vancouver, it's taking seven to nine years now. Yep. And the uncertainty of those builders for their, their risk of, of holding land that long and not sure about the uh, cost associated with it. And then you add on top, talking about costs, it's estimated that something like 30% of the building costs today are related to the cost of City Hall yes. of applications and time delays. Uh, we had Roger Harding, who's the founder of Kits Eyewear, a very successful entrepreneur here. He owns uh, Kits uh, Coffee Shop in the Cornwall, on the corner of Cornwall and U. Yeah. And when he was in here, he was telling us how he wanted to take that old Starbucks location and turn it into a coffee shop. And at the time of our filming, he was nine months in paying rent waiting for his license to turn a coffee shop into a coffee shop. I mean, this wow. is the insanity wow. that the people, business owners are dealing with. So anyways, I'm not no, here, look, here look, to pump so, your tires on what no, you've just it's, said. It's, but this it's, is like, it's really important because um, the average guy in the street who is also just trying to raise their family and or the, the, the mom who's trying to raise the kids, they're struggling as it is, but people trying to run a business, people can't even con conceive of the amount of red tape that the city's putting in front of them. I mean, that's what Roger said. He said yeah. there's no way anybody could actually, a regular Joe who's just trying to build a coffee shop for him and his family to run, could ever afford to carry the balance on uh, the cost on that. I'll let you carry on. Oh, Sorry. yeah, no, yeah. So, so we're talking about broken trust and, and public yeah. trust, and I'm blaming the politicians of the past. So to, to resolve this, and this is going to be a central theme of the NPA policy, and how do we fix that? 
We want to create flat rate CACs across the city. So a developer who's holding onto his property, uh, looking at his property, land banking, whatever it is that they're doing, that they don't have to negotiate with the city on the CACs. Yes. And for and for the listeners who aren't familiar, I'm just going to go on to the CACs. I, I want to not use uh, ac- um, acronyms. Acronyms yeah. and so throw that community amenable. Um, Community assisted contributions. Thank you. Yeah. Contributions. Yeah. So, and it's and it used to be in years gone by it would be swimming pools and parks and yeah. and, and False Creek are still waiting for their park from 1990, right? So right. that's another issue. Uh, so uh, swimming pools, parks, and and playgrounds and things that they would put in and sewerage and 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 clean pavements, and most of them. And this is what the CACs are about and how much they have to negotiate with the city. So if we have a flat rate, this will stop. If, if, if you're a developer and you're coming in front of me at city council, you know, 30 times a year, of course you want to make sure that we're, that the system's going to be good. Of course you're going to want to donate to my campaign. But with flat rate CACs, the developer who's standing beside you is going to be paying the same as you. So we, you don't have to have your arm twisted behind your back in any meetings in city exactly. hall or in a coffee shop or anywhere in Vancouver. This is going to absolutely level the playing field for every developer and every house builder who wants to build. I spoke this morning. I spoke this morning to a house builder who says that the permits just for the house alone are $70,000, and he's building for, for profit. Right? Yeah. So that's getting passed on to, to the people. So we, we have to do supply targets, which is going to be another thing. So we know that we have an, a net gain of uh, citizens into Vancouver of about 6,000 a year. We know that because it's a, a, a certified data uh, census information but we're only providing 900 rental units a year. And that's why we're looking at this affordability, as I say, it's not about people, it's not about um, people at the bottom, it's not about people on minimum wage, these are people making $100,000 a year are struggling to find accommodation Mm -hmm. and homes in in Vancouver. So if we have supply targets and we know what's going to be coming in five years, eight years, 10 years, we need the public sector, forgive me, we need the private sector to be providing that, right? Right. No, no municipality in the world can provide the kind of housing that Vancouver needs without going bankrupt. But we know the private sector are ready, willing, and want to build it. But it's just, again, we've got to cut the red tape. Okay. So that's, that's what we're going to do there. Okay. So supply targets. And I just want to make one more comment. We have to remember, the government is quite rightly inviting people into Canada. Right? The federal government invites people into Canada. And they're coming in droves. And they're coming to the lower mainland and they're coming into Vancouver as well. We have to make sure we accommodate that. We have 50,000 foreign students coming in, but there are 400,000 Canadian passport holders in Hong Kong, right? So 400,000 Canadian passport holders in Hong Kong, and they're not all going to Toronto. Right, so right. we really yeah. have to prepare. So supply targets. And of course, obviously, which everybody's talking about is uh, mandated minimum times for permit waits. So seven years from conception to completion is nonsense. So one of the common questions I ask to all of our guests who've come in on this topic of affordable housing, look, I'm a free market kind of person. I work in the financial markets and I'm a firm believer in just let capitalism do its thing. Is this not just as simple as basically getting the red tape out of the way so builders can build and create more supply and therefore it solves the problem? I mean, it seems very simple in my mind that that's the solution. Not everybody seems to think that way, I can say from the previous guests I've had on. What is your position on the sort of supply-demand equation? Is, that, is, is it that simple or is it something more than that? So, Andrew, I'd like to address this question. So, 
I, my background is public safety and financial uh, crime. And uh, so obviously, as a politician, I need to know about housing. So when I researched, what is affordable housing? Like, what does that mean? It's actually three things. And it's affordability, it's housing, and it's affordable housing. They're three separate issues, but somehow it gets lumped into all one thing, right? So it's confusing for people. So then I broke it down into three S's. And those three S's are supply, sustainability, and subsidy. So when we talk about supply, what can I do to make it better at city council? And that is permits. It's efficiency. And my personal motto through my whole life is efficiency. I do not like wasting time. I don't want to make it difficult for people. I want people to be able to get what they want faster. And I think that's why at FinTrack people are really happy when they find out I'm their compliance officer because I tell them how to do things faster, better, get it done, then move on to what's really important, which is their main business. So for supply, um, you know, I, I recently learned of these purpose-built rentals. And what's different about um, an individual renting out an apartment that they, they purchased, these purpose-built rentals, they do uh, affect supply, sustainability, and subsidy. So if you have a purpose-built rental, it will be managed by the owner, um, which is more effective for the people. It builds community. They're looking at quality, so they want longevity. Um, when you have an individual that rents out their condo, you, as the, the tenant, might be kicked out at any moment. You know, I can't imagine raising a family or you know, you're a couple and you, you live there or even by yourself. Like, How do you really get um, involved in the community when at any moment you might have to find a new place to live and moving mm -hmm. sucks? That's a good point. So if we um, push forward and allow and make it more efficient for the purpose-built rentals to be built in Vancouver, you're looking at efficiency, quality of life, community, uh, durable, beautiful buildings um, that the owner doesn't want you to leave. They want you to say, it's, it's a nightmare trying to find a new tenant. Um, you want the same neighbors. You want your kids to go to the same uh, school um, and, and have that uh, confirmation that this is where you live and it's your home. Um, and f when we look at subsidy, that's either through the city um, or other levels of government. Um, so, you know, it's all about community for me. So I think um, one of the ways that we can make Vancouver more livable and accessible is, is focusing on the purpose-built rentals. Okay, so let's maybe to, t to tie this into purpose-built rentals. When we had uh, Christine Boyle from One City on recently, one of the proposals that their party is uh, brought forward, and they actually brought it forward in the last city, the current city council we have quite recently, is this idea that any single family home should be allowed to be automatically permitted to, uh, to build a four-story strata condo building or six-story all-rental building, which is what you're talking about, Cinnamon. So I just to clarify, I said to her, okay, well, like I, I live up in West Point Gray, and on 10th Avenue, it's, it's, we've got a vacancy rate amongst the, the businesses there of probably north of 70% now. Um, and there's just not enough business, uh, the business, there's not enough people living there to allow the businesses to thrive. So if you allow these homes to just convert into apartment buildings, that maybe is good for those businesses. But I can't imagine if I was a homeowner and I've got a house to the right of me and a house to the left of me and a developer comes along and like one builds a four-story 
condo building and one builds a six-story apartment building and I'm wedged in the middle and as I, I clarified I said is that is that what you're willing to see happen and she said absolutely what's your position on this strategy or this uh, this policy can I go for it go for it okay so I live in a unique community just off Commercial Drive. I'm in a single family home, uh, fortunate enough to, to be there, that has been uh, stratified. So it was a full size lot divided into two. So we own one part and then there's the other home and we share a communal space in the middle. That's our backyard. Um, so you get to know your neighbors that way. We have social housing across the street. I, I know all of the neighbors. We have a co-op across the street as well. Then we have townhomes as well, and then rental apartments down the street. We, we are all of it. And I could see how it would be scary for people uh, not to have that, but I do think you can't just uh, green light everything if, you know, in certain communities or um, different communities. It does work though. But if you've only ever lived in a single family home, I think that you don't know what it looks like. Um, but where we place these uh, buildings needs to be a thoughtful process as well. You can't just mm -hmm. green light it and it goes everywhere. It really does have to be thoughtful. Um, you have to consider transit and schools and, and what's existing in the community. But I think if it's done thoughtfully and well, then you know we need more units. We absolutely more, need more units. If you have thousands of people coming to Vancouver every year, then you need the space for the people to, to be here. So you do believe uh, to a certain extent in the sort of supply demand issue yes. of just creating more supply. We need more supply, but it has to be thoughtful. Yeah. And like I said before, it has to be quality. Yeah. You just don't want to be, you know, popping up things all over the place and then they fall apart and then you're into this this terrible cycle of then what? Sure. Morning, I mean your background is in real estate development. You've you've got into this space. So why don't you coin in and tell tell us what your thoughts are? on the affordable housing issue here in Vancouver. Yeah, when we talk about the affordability of the housing, and it's not only about the affordability. Just like Sainman mentioned, and it's about the community, it's about the infrastructure, about school, about uh, livable, about uh, inclusive, all these kind of things. But when I'm talking about uh, this one, it's the whole solution. The first one is we need to build more supplies, that's for sure, but not for the whole Canada not for the whole world. We built the most supplies for Vancouver people. So who's the Vancouver people? People working in Vancouver. People have small business in Vancouver. And they are Vancouver people. We cannot build, you know, everybody in the world wants go to come to Vancouver. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. So who doesn't want to come here? So we cannot supply the whole world. So that's the thing. So when I'm talking about building more supplies and I'm talking about Vancouver people first. And then if we have left over, open to the public, whoever you want to pay the more money or something, why not, right? We make sure. some money. So that's the number one. And but you know, there's another thing is and we have rich area, poor area in Vancouver right now. It's not good. Right, so uh, I, people doesn't want to don't want to live in the poor area. So why don't we just build more buildings and it looks the same, right? You cannot tell is this, this is rich buildings, this is the poor people's living. No, it's not good, right? It's not good for the people, especially for children, right? So we want to do. I want to do. I did not talk to them yet, mm -hmm. and I want to do. You know, so these kind of things, and everybody feel good. 
And right. so, so that's for Vancouver. And but for sure, build more supplies. And right now we got a cap. Oh, this area only four floors. That area only uh, six floors. And why don't we just open our mind and then give them more, you know, flexibility, build more stuff? Yes, when I'm talking about this concept, people think, hey, you need um, uh, more uh, supplies from the electric electricity or water or drainage. Yes, why don't we just uh, resolve the problem, right? right. We, we need more supplies, and if we got any problem, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we just resolve that. So that's number one. Then number two is, and uh, Fred already mentioned the permit. Mm -hmm. So in Vancouver, when we are applying a permit for building our development, up to seven years, it's yeah. terrible. If you are an investor, if you want to invest money in Vancouver, yeah. do you want to do that? No, you won't touch it. If seven years later and they, they, they say no, what does that mean? That means you lose all your money, right? So why don't you just go to Langley or somewhere and other cities, they can make sure in one year or maybe even half a year, they can, they can say yes or no. It's a very certainty, right? It's a very, it's a very good one. So if we don't resolve this problem, and it's still like seven years, so not that, not in, there's no certainty, the, the private sector is not coming back. They don't mm -hmm. want to go to Vancouver, come to Vancouver. That's number two. So number three is we want to resolve the problem in economic way, not, you know, private uh, sectors or the developers lose money and we force them to lose money. No, that's not a good idea. I want solution when, when, when. Everybody wins. Why not? We, sure. we, we are smart people. You are smart. Everybody's smart. Let's see. I mean, together. I think this is a really good point because yeah. this, the, 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 I think the, the scare tactic that a lot of the other parties are trying to promote is that there's a zero sum game. Like mm -hmm. if, if the developer wins, then the, the resident or the buyer must be losing. But you, everybody can win. Yes. That's not a good yes. idea, yeah. right? Yeah. So if they lose money, don't come. The last one I want to talk about, yeah. the, the affordability, is a property tax. It's not only about the building costs. It's not only about the, the supplies, the demandings. If you buy a house, you cannot, you, you, know, you cannot hold it. You cannot live there forever. What does that mean? You lose the house, right? You, you will go move out. So property tax is a very big one, big, big burden for Vancouver people. Why? People say, hey, morning, you need to pay the workers, the city staff, and everybody. Yes, but we have some way to reduce cost, reduce the waste. We spend so much money <laughs> on something is not necessary for Vancouver city level. Well, that's really refreshing to hear because I think you're <laughs> probably the first person I've had who actually walked in here and said, we, we actually spend too much at City Hall. Um, let, let me go to, okay, thank you for that morning, by the way, let's, I want to get to public safety, but to finish off I, on our conversation around housing, uh, it sounds like you want to say something, let me ask about Broadway plan. Mm -hmm. do you, do you, the way the Broadway plan has been approved by city hall, like if you were in city hall and those last days before this election kind of came to, came to, uh, uh, came about, would you have approved the plan as it was? Uh, to answer that question first, no, but I just want to add one last thing uh, without uh, go, going back on, on the um, housing affordability yeah. and, and CACs and to go what Sidham was, was uh, discussing earlier. One of the things that we believe is that if you're a, a developer and you're going to build rentals, rental units, is that that is the CAC. That's your contribution to the community. Yeah. So we want to make sure that the CACs are as low as possible, if barely anything, because let's look at that building as a CAC, all right, as a community contribution. Mm -hmm. So that's a good point, actually. Yeah, uh, and it's, uh, any, 
I'm, I'm seeking out really uh, great people to give me advice on, on housing because the complexity of housing is not, so we're talking about supply and we're talking about the private sector creating more supply. And we, there was uh, three towers went up in Yale Town and the rents around those three towers dropped by 1.5%. Now, for some people who are struggling, that's, that's a significant amount. If we can create more affordable housing, maybe we'll see a reduction in, in some of the rents. Uh, and certainly the price of some buildings. But to go back to the Broadway plan, no, I would not have approved it. Uh, and I think it's a flawed plan. So what I spoke to the campaign team is, can we cancel it and can we uh, go back on it? And they said, no, uh, we could, but it's, uh, they've got penalties built into it right now. So the, and the penalties will be in the billions of dollars. Mm. So. Do we need to revisit it? Absolutely. We've got to revisit the Broadway plan. So uh, you may have read the Goodman report. I, I read it recently. It was put to me, and it's a really great report. And it talks about how uh, when the Broadway plan was initially conceived, it, uh, it's, it was at, uh, I think, 70,000 housing units around there. But they whittled away and whittled away and reduced the, the, the size of the, the buildings. And they lost 30,000 units. Now, that's not my number. That's from the Goodman Report. They right. know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And, um, so, and I have to listen to them as the experts. And I sat down uh, recently, and just the staggering uh, complexity of what they're bringing to the table is it's not easy, right? It's going to be lengthy discussions. And, and it's not a discussion that you can throw out in an election, um, not because people don't understand. Of course they do. But it, the complexity is there's interweaving arguments. And, uh, and I know you know that. Mm -hmm. uh, so... No, the, the, the Broadway plan has got a lot of flaws. If we can build um, affordable housing or uh, smaller housing around transit hubs, that's the biggest environmental contribution we can also make to the city, where people are using transit, they're using less cars. What do you mean by smaller housing? Well, because we... What, what's that, what does that mean? So, so I, smaller housing is, is, do we need bigger homes, big homes uh, everywhere? So if we building 30,000 units. They can't all be, you know, 2,000 square feet. Oh, I see. Okay. So let's, let's build apartments that people can live in. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, it was said to me, um, look, some of these units are 430 square feet, and that's just not big enough. And I'm going, actually, I don't know if that... I, when my first apartment that I lived in in London yeah. for 11 years was probably around 500 square feet. <laughs> I lived there for 11 years. Yeah, sure. And... Um, Without, I, I never felt squashed, and I want people to know. You know, I, I grew up in social housing. I grew up in a council house in in um, in Manchester, with nine siblings and my mother, right, single parent family. And as I explained to my kids, when you know we were obviously a, a privileged family and live a privileged lifestyle, and I said I would have to move twenty two people into our house so that they could know what it was like for me as a kid <laughs> growing up, so that they understood how, how little space you have. So. Um, but we, we do have to talk about house sizes. What what, what is a what is a um, what is that uh, the size and the um, the square footage of a house that is is reasonable? Uh -huh. Because we can't put people in shoe boxes and we yeah. can't warehouse people in shoe boxes. Mm -hmm. So again, the, the quick answer to your question is: Do I approve the Broadway plan? I have to because of the complexity of what what's been put in front of the the, right. uh, the council already. Okay, okay, that's good. Good summary. Well, that's a good conversation around housing. Let's jump to uh, public safety. Mm. Now, Cinnamon, you've had an incredibly interesting background with your, your career, and I can only imagine what, uh, what you've maybe seen in your line of work. Um, uh, for a city councillor to, uh, uh, to, to be able to sort of walk in your shoes is something that most people in city council haven't at this point. Um, in your opinion, is Vancouver 
a does a Van, does Vancouver have a public safety issue today? Absolutely. So this is this is this is more than not just sensationalism sensationalism from the no. the media. You actually think there's a public safety issue? Yes, there is a, a random attacks, um, but but not only that. I mean, a lot of people focus on downtown east side because it's so visible. Um, but Vancouver's a port city. We have an international airport, and we're close to all of the borders, right? So drugs are coming in and coming out, which affects public safety. And people maybe don't think of that, but that's through my lens, that's what I see. Um, in Vancouver, we have crime, we have poverty, and we have homelessness, and people don't want to talk about these things. And um, when I look at downtown east side, and because of the committee work and the volunteer work that I've done, I talk to people down there. They are friends. I've built relationships. Um, people deserve safety and security. That's what every single person, every human being wants. And what's happening right now in downtown Eastside, and which is spreading to other neighborhoods, is violence, unpredictable behavior. We have dangerous people out there and there's predators out there. There are so many good people in downtown Eastside and there are protectors down there that try and keep bad people away. But there's an ugly truth that there's human trafficking, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, all of these things are happening and people are being targeted down there. And I will say something that could be controversial, Andrew, but Vancouver, I believe, has become a city of enablers. And NPA is here to stop that because, you know, we, everyone talks about the four pillar approach, but we're lacking in the four pillars. Cinema, before you go into what's lacking in the four pillars, can you just maybe clarify for the listeners and viewers what the four pillars are? Okay, the four pillar approach involves harm reduction, prevention, treatment, and enforcement. And in Vancouver, we have harm reduction and some can argue enforcement, but I think we're lacking in prevention and treatment. And I don't think anyone grows up or wants to find themselves in a situation where they're in this uh, cycle of addiction. So right now we have safe injection sites in Vancouver. We have safe supply sites. They're separate. Um, and you know what? This is affecting individuals and, and families, to be, to be honest. Um, it, it's interesting when you, you talk about people um, and safe supply and safe injection, and, and you, you'll always, people think of like an individual, maybe a stereotype. But through my volunteer work, I've talked to families. I've talked to a mother who was an immigrant to Canada, and she has a six-year-old boy. And the mother said, Cinnamon, you're running for city council. I need to ask you a question. And I said, what? And she said, why can my husband go down the street and get free drugs? How does this help our family? And it just gave me chills, right? And so right. the boy was sitting beside me on the couch and we're talking and he says, yeah, I said, you know, my daddy's gonna die soon. And this is their normal. The mother is frustrated. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it, it's, and this is the other side, you know, you, you hear, oh, you don't want people to overdose, but then if you don't have enough prevention and treatment, then it's just going to continue. And we have to look at the access and 
is what's been going on working? No, it has not been working. And you know, where are the drugs coming from? Other source countries. So you have then all of that going on with gangs, cartels. Mm-hmm. It's all linked, right? And Vancouver, it, it's sad. It's sad what's happening. So I have a bigger lens on, on what's going on. It's not all, you know, just Vancouver's problem. It's a global problem, but we can do better. Thank you for that. In this, in this last um, uh, year, the current city council, all but the former NPA uh, candidates voted in favor of not increasing the VPD budget, um, which to the tune of about $5 million. The VPD, uh, the Vancouver Police Board, uh, went to the provincial government to appeal this and it was and won successfully. Um, and what it did cause, as an outside kind of observing this, is a kind of a, a two groups. You've got the people who, uh, former NPA uh, city councillors, who were in support of continuing to fund the Vancouver Police Department, and those who were against. And this sort of, what I describe as a defund the police movement. Now... It, maybe this is an answer is already obvious because of your backgrounds, but do you believe that uh, it was the right decision for city council to cap how much the city of Vancouver was getting as far as funding on an annual basis, being that they do account for, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think it's somewhere in the 25 to 30% mm-hmm. range of the overall mm-hmm. annual budget? Okay, uh, if, if I may. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's really an, an outrage. And, and the difficulty that, I mean, we're already talking about a public safety crisis. And, yeah. and I don't think anyone's going to say the situation's bad. I mean, we're in a critical state. Uh, we've got this young man making minimum wage, delivering food last week who had his throat cut. Yes. Right? We've got people on uh, Granville Street being attacked by a machete. We've got people setting themselves on fire. We've got uh, break-ins all around Vancouver. Just last night, there was uh, news about a, a woman who had a knife in uh, VGH, and the police had to come and apprehend her. Uh, nobody was injured, thankfully, but yeah, these, seems, these seem to be happening every day. It's, it's, it's every day. It's, it's almost every day. There are 10 race hate crimes a week, which didn't happen before. Right. right? So this is, this is a new phenomena. It's, so people... When it's, but, this, but is this a, lack, a lacking of police services issue? So, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things which are lacking. First of all, it's a, it's, um, we've got a public safety crisis, and they're holding back $5.7 million. And it was $5.7 million the province had to tell the, the city to put in. We're lacking a, a leadership because the, the mayor has walked away from his role as the chair of the police board. Right. So when you're... The, one of the biggest privileges that you can have as a mayor is the safety of the people in your in your area, right? In your city, that's your biggest privilege. That you're you're their protector, and they look to you for protection. He abandoned his post. So the biggest responsibility, one of your biggest responsibilities as well. Yeah, it, it's it's a huge responsibility. Look, if if I was you take an oath the oath of office. And if I had an oath of office to be the mayor of the city, there is no way I would dishonor it by walking away from the biggest responsibility that you have, which is the safety of the public, the safety of the people. So, and we're also looking at the police have already been defunded. I think everybody agrees, and and the the numbers are very clear, that the police have not had an increase in their resources, in their um, uh, staffing levels, since 2009. 
So the, since 2009, the, the, um, the residences, the net gain in population of Vancouver is going to buy about 80,000 people, but the police levels are still the same. There are no cops on the downtown east side. Mm -hmm. So I, I walk around with the doctor who says, I see them when there's an overdose, but otherwise we don't see them. Uh, she's, she's now afraid. She's got a practice with 8,000 patients in, in her practice, and she's now afraid to walk down the street. Uh, people are always talking about the fear. So um, we have to do better. There's a lack of leadership, there's a lack of policing, uh, and there has been a distinct lack of funding. So I'm gonna say this, which is, which is not controversial, is policing is expensive. And uh, we don't want to see, uh, we don't want to raise uh, property taxes, we really don't. Um, but we have to bring on additional police resources. We have to bring them on. And I want to do that through bringing on 50 retired police officers. Don't want, old, don't want uh, 50 old people walking around the streets. I want people my age, younger. You know, some cops can retire in the mid to late 40s. And I want police officers with a great discipline record, police officers with a good arrest record, police officers who would come on and do a short-term contract, do two years, three years, and then we can fill it in with new blood uh, through the Justice Institute as they begin to move out the back door. So we have to get them walking the beat, get them walking the streets. Okay, Fred, I, I, I'm going to pause for a quick second to, to contrast. You're proposing to hire 50 retired police officers. Ken Sim has come out saying that if you elect, if, if we elect a, an ABC majority, he will in his first 100 days hire 100 public health nurses as well as 100 new police officers. So he's got double the number of yours, including he's going to throw in all these nurses as well. So, you know, why wouldn't listeners want to vote for a guy who's going to bring in, you know, arguably twice as many police officers as you're going to do? Okay, it's a really great question. And it, do you know what? It'd be great if we had 200 new police officers. The reality is, is that Ken never even approached the Vancouver Police Department to ask them if that's the numbers that they're looking for. The Vancouver Police Department is saying that they need about 59 police officers plus approximately 20 clerical staff. That's the numbers that the Vancouver Police Department have put out. They haven't said that they need 100 cops. They would love to get 100 police officers. We, we, we really would, but there's a cost, right? They don't come for free. And 100 police officers is going to be about 10 or $15 million a year. But when you have the fringe in benefits added, it's about $15 million a year. The money's got to come from somewhere. The nurses are a provincial issue. Right? It's not a city issue. And we're already talking about that the, the city is dabbling into things which are provincial and federal, and we need to stay look, focused on our uh, city issues. And let, let, the, let the province take care of the nurses that we need. There's no doubt we need more um, uh, welfare and mental health staff. There's no doubt about it. But that's from the province, and they have to tackle that. We have to focus on keeping the budget, the city budget down. It's already ballooned under this administration by uh, $359 million. It's doubled in size since the last NPA government. And the taxes have gone up 25% in the last four years. Yeah, Can't do it. You can't, you can't just bring in 100 police officers. And just my final point is the Justice Institute who trains the police officers okay. only has 25 spaces a year for the Vancouver Police Department. 25 spaces a year. There's no 100 police officers coming. Oh, so you're saying that, that, that even if someone was willing to fulfill that promise, it can't be delivered on because the Justice Institute, which is the organization that determines how many police officers go into a community, is, uh, is capped at 25 for 25 Vancouver? 25 for Vancouver. 
And even those 25 spaces, because I am in touch with the Vancouver Police Department, I am in touch with, with the staff that work there, they're struggling to fill those spaces because they don't have the recruitment that they used to. So policing was a vocation. When I joined policing, police, people joined the police for 30 years, and it's right. a 30-year police uh, career. Now people join the police for five years, and three years, and two years, and oh, they're really? not joining. They're not coming, we're in Gen Z. And Gen Z are not seeing well. And let's be honest. Who would a, want to be a police no. officer these days? I mean, like these, these, these. This is not a job that I think most people would it's want. Tough. No, it's it's, yeah. it's completely changed beyond all. I recognition. mean, they've been vilified. Do you believe? Okay, look, you you uh, you're you're a former police officer, West Vancouver, uh, London. You're a visible minority. What's your view on the city of Vancouver's uh, um, um, sort of grade on how they're dealing with? Uh, you know, uh, adopting visible minorities, including people of other races and genders and creeds and that type of thing. Are they are, are they the same police department that we see down south, or is it different? Oh well, look, the, the, I'm really glad that you mentioned down south. Right? Yeah. So when I when I have been abroad and I talk about uh, policing and professionalism, I refer to the Vancouver Police Department, and and I'm going to say this, and I mean this with the greatest sincerity and no hyperbole. I think they're one of the most professional police units I've ever seen, ever had the privilege to work with. I did. I wasn't a Vancouver police officer. I worked in West Van. Yeah. But when I set up a um, an intimate partner domestic violence unit on the North Shore, I went to the VPD. And their expertise and their professionalism was bar none. So I would say that anybody who is in a, in a situation of a violent uh, uh, relationship situation, if you go to the Vancouver Police Department, the service level that you're going to get is exceptional. And, I, and so I, that's what I espouse about that. Uh, I'm really proud. When I sit there and I see a police officer walking down the street in a turban, that should have been happening 40 years ago, right? It's happening now, and we have to be thankful for that. I, I'm just walking here. I'm seeing two young female police officers dealing with a man who sprawled out on the pavement, and they both look like they're about 23, 24. It's, they're handling the situation, and of course they're handling it really well, right? They're really, really well trained. And so I've got the greatest admiration for the Vancouver Police Department and how they handle it. I've met with the leaders of the Vancouver Police Union. Everybody I meet in every situation is professional, and, and I, we can't ask for more than that. What we do have, uh, and because it, it, it goes into this issue of down south, policing in America is to policing as military music is to music, right? Okay. It's an entirely different beat all to itself. And we cannot judge policing in Canada, and we cannot judge policing in Vancouver based on what we see on the TV of what's happening in America. Mm -hmm. We still have the Pelian principles, which goes back 200 years. The police are the public, the public are the police, so that everybody's got a responsibility. The only difference, the police are paid to keep the peace. As the public, we all have a responsibility. And that's what I see in Vancouver. America, uh, and, and you know, there's a slight, uh, slight, you can go whichever way you want. Everybody watches the TV, whether it's a militarized police department, we don't have a militarized police service in Vancouver. I'm right. really proud of the police in Vancouver. Okay, good, good, well said. Because this topic is around public safety and we've got into the downtown, town east side, I want to go back to morning. Sure. Your your um, initial visit to, to Vancouver in 2004. Yes. And you asked about where's the nasty side of Vancouver? Like, what's the, where's the dark side? And you went down to the downtown east side and your observation was it really wasn't that bad. I mean, you probably maybe didn't see some of it, but it wasn't, 
you didn't have the impression that someone walking the same morning Lee who showed up shows up in the downtown east side in 2022 would probably have a very different impression. I happened to just drive down there. I, I've been seeing this on the news, but I, I was with my 98-year-old grandfather driving him around the city, kind of talking about, this was just this earlier this week, and these guys were with me, and it was uh, driving through the downtown east side. He, he actually started tearing up. He started crying because he couldn't believe how bad it was. And he felt really horrible for the people down there. Cinnamon, you've made reference to the fact that it's not the people who are addicted to the drugs that are the problem. It's everything else that's around that. So, Morning, let's go to you. You've got a passion for trying to fix the downtown east side. Again, like housing, we've got a lot of politicians who come in here and they go, I got the solution for the downtown east side. And yet, I've been hearing this for years and it still is get, just getting worse. So, fill the listeners in on why, if they were to think about electing you for city council, how are you going to be different than everybody else that's been in, your, in, in these shoes before you? as far as addressing the, 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 the safety and issues and, and problems that uh, pertain to the downtown east side? Yeah, so when we are talking about the public safety, that's what we are talking about, we cannot avoid the downtown east side. When we are talking about downtown east side, we must notice it's not the downtown east side only. It's a whole Vancouver. It's a homeless. It's a drug problem. It's a mental health problem. Why? Because, you know, I went to downtown east side, and in winter night, many times to deliver winter jacket, socks, pants, and shoes and to homeless people. I talked to them many times, many people. I figured out most of them are drug users. Mm. And some of them are mental patients. And so when we talk about the police, yes, I agree. Police is the great way to fight and the criminals. But there's another thing we must mention. If we get more and more criminals, how many police would we need? You mentioned 100? And no, 1,000 police, 10,000, 1 million, maybe that's what we need. <laughs> how can you fight with the growing criminals? So there's another way we must mention, reduce the criminals. How? Okay, the, so let, that's why I'm talking about the source of the safety. So it's the source of the unsafe problems. Mm -hmm. What is that? Drug users, uh, they have their rights. I'm not talking about they have no human rights, right? So when we, we really want to resolve the problem, it's not only city, Vancouver City's problem. We must cooperate with the provincial and the federal government. But Vancouver, we are the car, we are the city to drive this forward. So. Yes, you know, and uh, Vancouver City right now, they are doing the four pillars, like a cinnamon mentioned, they are doing that. But something's wrong. I support the four pillars. What is wrong? The orders is wrong. When you're talking about drug additions, they, they are focusing on the harm reduction. It's totally, totally, totally That's wrong. That's the number one That's focus. number one. And you right. can take a look at the Vancouver website. And harm, harm reduction. And to clarify for listeners, the harm reduction is basically the safe injection sites and the safe supply sites, right? I'm surprised the city, the Vancouver city right now, they are proud of provide pure, free cocaine, drugs. What are you guys, drug dealers? That's not wrong. That's not right. right. I have two kids. They were born in Vancouver. They're growing up in Vancouver. They attend Vancouver schools. And the problem is they will come back to me later. Hey, Dad, 
I want to try drugs. I want to try cocaine. How, how, can, I, how can I argue with them? Oh, no, it's wrong, and the drug is not good. They will tell me, hey, you know what? The Vancouver City, the government, they promote pure, free cocaine. So it means it's right. good. It's a fashion. It's a valid point. That's not good. It's a wrong message. So they need to change the order. That's number one. If we really want to resolve the problem, the number one must be prevention. Prevention. Take a look at what's going on in Vancouver. Did you see any prevention programs? I did not see anything. Right. I did not see anything. So if many more, more and more drug users come to this trouble, and how, how can you resolve the problem? So the first thing, if you get a flood, the first thing you need to cut the source of the water, right? So that's the first thing, prevention. We must stop people, especially for the teenagers, the young people, they know nothing about this world yet, right? right? They will come to the drug problem. That's number one, number one, number one, okay? The number two, if we really cannot stop the source, if people really want to try, and if they really get some addiction, what can we do? Treatment. Right. Treatment. That's number two. Treatment. We must do the treatment, right? We cannot just look at them, watch them like right now, and they're dying on the street in the downtown east side. That's not right. The treatment. We must think about one thing. It could be vol voluntarily? No. Yep. If you can't do it voluntarily or voluntarily, it, it cannot call drugs. Right. Yeah. So we must. Do well, it's interesting. I mean, David Eby has come out publicly saying that he believes. Uh, I don't know what the number was, but if someone's a, like a repeat offender uh, and creating problems, havoc as a as a an addicted individual three times, he believes it's fair. I, I mean, I don't want to quote David because I mean, I like he's a good friend of mine. I don't. Want, hopefully, I got this right. But the idea was that you know you you get pulled away and you right. man yeah you go on to mandatory treatment to get off off the drugs that you're addicted to that's is right. that what we're talking about that's here? what i'm talking okay. mandatory it must be mandatory but not by police not by nurse by who by doctors right they got some trouble we need doctors we need a professional institution or doctors to treat that and to get them out of that trouble and in the meantime when we have a prevention program when we have a treatment right treatment program and then let's talk about harm reduction and we, we cannot watch them you know die today so if necessary the doctor according to the doctor's professional opinion we can give a little bit Drugs, free, pure, and to, to save their life for today. But right. we cannot just do it. We, we must continue to do the treatment. Right. Right. Okay. So that's the solution. And to treat, to, to, to resolve the problem. And so if we don't talk about this, you can see. 20 years later, drug dealers will be, f will be le legally. <laughs> yeah. and, and the drug stores will be everywhere. Yeah. And that's what you want? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, those are really good points. I mean, I've often said that I feel the reason we've lost the war on drugs is because we stopped fighting the war a long time ago, yeah. which kind of ties in with your view of, um, of prevention. Um, you, you two look yeah. like you're chomping at the bit, ready <laughs> no, to say well, something as well. I, so so I, first of all, I want to clarify. I know that Morning's not advocating that we get 10,000 police officers. So it's like <laughs> just, just for the listeners' uh, clarification. We cannot have, and to reemphasize what he's saying, harm reduction and safe supply alone, are, yes, they've, they've got their place 
in, in this entire process, but it must come with treatment. So, you know, I, I keep saying to people, and because I, I've been down there, and to your point, when I walked down, um, I, was, I was on my way to my accountant, and I had to go through Tent City. My eyes welled up because I, I got my stories, I got my history with the downtown east side that I go. But, you know, it's like if harm reduction and slum housing uh, were the only thing that was on offer, and your child was the person that was down there receiving harm reduction and safe supply. You have to say, like, is it good enough? Yeah. Like, do you think that that's good enough? Because I don't think anybody believes it is. Right. right. So we have to have a treatment program. So because of my history on the downtown east side is that this whole question of mandatory treatment, and David Eby is saying that because it's polling well. Uh, but you know, I, I was talking about, should we have mandatory treatment when I worked on the downtown east side on the Missing Women's Task Force because of what I saw? And um, you see, I, I saw the records of, of um, somebody that I, I was working with, their medical records for seven years, and the, the records had to come on a dolly. So because there was, they couldn't carry them, and I'm not kidding you, they, I went to St. Paul's and the guy came pulling in a dolly backwards seven years, and they were stacked like this. That's police officers, it's an entire ward, it's a school, it's probably classrooms, and it's an, treating like an entire ward or, or the hospital of, of a floor of old people in, in a dormitory. It was one person who had not contributed to society. And I make no uh, judgment against this person because they're for the grace of God go I. That could have been me, right? But uh, we have to, when we look at that, that's when we have to have a conversation of mandatory treatment. I'm not saying that we should have mandatory treatment. Mm -hmm. David Eby can, can float this around. I'm saying we have to have a conversation about mandatory treatment. Right, right. We, right. we really do. Okay, uh, I want to kind of speak to the elephant in the room. There's been uh, a video that came out uh, recently uh, about yourself, uh, Fred, uh, with respect to SOGI, which for the listeners who aren't familiar, stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, a policy that was brought into the, the school board system, or the BC, I don't know if it was BC schools or just the city of Vancouver. BC. And BC schools. Um, and there's been some talk, including uh, one of your former NPA school board candidates, Tony Dong, who stated your comments as being bigoted and uh, prejudicial. To clear the air on this, can you provide the listeners and viewers uh, an idea of, of where you stand on this policy? Yeah. And maybe even <clears throat> to start, help clarify beyond just the title of the acronym being sexual orientation, gender identity, what it actually means and, and where you stand on this position. Yeah, this, this, this is really important and, I, and I'm really glad that you brought it to the attention. Because it wasn't only Tony Dong who said that this was bigoted, my statement was bigoted and, um, and wrong. But it was Ken Sim came out and his team came out of, about me being homophobic. So let's be clear about what I said. And I said that the, the program, the way the program was rolled out was wrong. And, and I used the term foolish. And, I, and my, my statement was probably clumsy, right? But basically what I was saying was not controversial because I was saying parents need to be involved in programs of uh, uh, controversial programs that go into school. And the, this was an issue about LGBTQ youth in schools. LGBTQ youth were not engaged in the program rollout. And that was the other thing that I said. So I also recognized and, and said at the time that SOGI is two things. So there's SOGI, which is an enhancement to the BC Human Rights Act, uh, which is about obviously uh, lesbian, gay, um, transgender youth um, and people. And so no one in their right mind is going to um, come out against an enhancement to the BC Human Rights. That's what we're all looking for. 
What I also said, it, but then there's SOGI123, and it's SOGI123, that's the name of the program that's in the schools, and how it was rolled out. It, I said it doesn't go far enough, because it only protects the LGBTQ youth inside the school. It doesn't protect them outside of the school. It doesn't do anything for vismin kids, right? So my, my comments were about, we need to do something that's better. We need to engage LGBTQ youth, and we need to engage parents. Again, it's not controversial. But I was in the, the process of a political process, and so my words were spun around, and I know that Drex was, was going crazy for, about this uh, homophobic man who's now leading the, um, the NPA. Nothing can be further from the truth. Now, people were saying to me, I need to apologize, and I should, um, and I should make a statement. And I did a statement four years ago. But here's the reality is, I, don't, I know who I am as an individual. And when these statements were being made about me, they took up less than 1% of my brain power because I wasn't interested. I know who I am. And, and people who know me and know me for my entire life know who I am. But what I realized is it was actually hurting my kids. And that's where I draw the line. And that's where when I called out Ken Sim as a liar because his statement was factually not just in error, but it was egregious what he was saying, egregious what his party was saying. One of his people wouldn't even shake my hand when I, when I walked into the room. And now that they know that that's not who I am, now that they know that Ken Sim made this up for a political point, now there's an issue of integrity because I know my integrity is intact. But if you're going to use this just to either pull away my votes, great. It's a politics. We, we understand that, and I have to fight, and I have to earn every vote at the, in the polling booth and in the privacy of that polling booth. But now that you know that it's a lie, and you still refuse to shake my hand, you still, re you still refuse to engage with me, the integrity is an issue for the ABC party. It's not an issue for me. Right. Schools must be a safe place for everybody. Transgender, gay youth, questioning youth, bisexual youth need to know that they're safe and that they can be themselves inside the school, but not only the school, but in society. So I have advocated my entire adult life for diversity. When I was a cop in East London, uh, I, there, I was dealing with a, I was in my mid-twenties and I remember dealing with a, uh, a same-sex marriage case or same-sex relationship case at the time where there was a lot of violence involved and I reached out to Stonewall. I had to scrape my inspector off the ceiling by the time he'd finished cleaning the floor with me, right? Because I reached out to Stonewall and I said, look, what are we gonna do? How do we do this? And they said I was the first police officer that they'd ever spoken to. When I came to Vancouver and I drove around with a pride flag on the back of my car and some colleagues in the police department saying, hey, look, you really need to take that off because I'm parking my car every day outside the police station. Like, of course I'm not taking it off. I believe in this, right? I was the cop in the community police service who wanted to make sure that we got the West Vancouver Police Department into the pride parade, and we never did. I think, that, I think they are now. So just about 10 days ago, I had to say goodbye. Uh, uh, thankfully, I... It's, it's not a permanent goodbye, but I had to make a phone call to a very, very dear friend who I've known since I was 15. He was going in for an operation, and he's a gay man. And he came to live in Vancouver because I was living here. And he was 14, I was 15, and we have been best friends since I was a child, or like a, a youth. I don't have to parade my, my apologies around anywhere, so, but I think apologies are due they're not due from me, they're due to me and to the NPA for, I, I, I'm 58 years old, I'll be 58 years old very soon. 
I got a lot of flaws and I've got an ex-wife, right? And you can find, if you dig deep enough, you'll find the flaws. You don't have to. We all have flaws. You you don't have to make stuff up, right? You just uh, ask me and I'll probably tell you what half of them are. And I'm sure my current wife will talk about, I can't wash a fork without leaving something on it or clean my (laughs) socks. So I know it's politics and I understand it's politics. Don't harm my children. Yeah. Well said. Don't harm my family. Well said, Fred. Thank you. As we've done with all of our other guests, we have our third topic. Most of our listeners are are pretty uh, excited to hear about how somebody potentially going to be a new city councilor at, at our at our city hall is going to help them uh, save money. Right. You know, most of our our listeners are pretty financially inclined individuals. So, when I look at the city's finances, which I, I nerd out and do that often, <laughs> and I take a read through the annual financial statements, I'm always appalled at how much spending goes on in certain areas of the city that to me seem like some people have coined them as pet projects or, um, you know, um, uh, areas where are just kind of frivolous or they're not really within the li- the lanes of what our municipal government is supposed to be spending its money on. Right. In your opinion, where is the city currently overspending its money? It's clearly not in police. You don't believe that. <laughs> so where is the city currently overspending? Well, Andrew, um, I, I looked at a few things for financial responsibility. And um, I come from a compliance perspective, so I'm looking at policies and procedures and gaps and deficiencies. So what I uh, discovered was was staffing. Apparently there's 40 comms people, and is that necessary? So that's one of the first things that I would look at because, wow, I, I don't even think like BC Hydro has 40 comm staff. So you look at other big organizations and businesses, and they don't have that much, so is that necessary? And you just think about all the salary dollars going towards that. It's outrageous. Um, the other thing I wanted to explore, and this is because of my volunteer background, when we handed out small grants, the recipients were, uh, it was mandatory that they uh, submitted every single dollar, even down to the penny, right, for receipts. What did they spend the money on? So it's my understanding that uh, the city of Vancouver hands out multiple grants to many nonprofit organizations. And when I'm talking about nonprofits, there are thousands in Vancouver. When I first started my journey into uh, civic politics, I had no idea how many nonprofits are. I mean, we all know the big ones, like the food bank and, and things sure. like that. But there's thousands of them in Vancouver. Now, the funds uh, can go up to $175,000. Are these organizations providing receipts and accountability? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So I want to look at that. Where are we giving the money? What are they using it for? And should we continue giving them the the funds? Um, So I'm again, yeah, yeah, looking for efficiencies. Like I said, it's my personal motto. So that's how I want to look at and address financial responsibility. Look, this has been a great conversation and you are the last party for us to have come in and present themselves. And I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. For those who have also enjoyed this, they want to get involved, they like what they're hearing from Fred and Cinnamon and Morning, they like the idea of supporting the NPA, how do they get involved? What can they do? We're really close to this election. Oh, well, look, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come in with, with my colleagues. This is truly one, one of the best ones I've ever done. I'm really grateful. And uh, they can reach out to npa.ca is where you'll find our website and people can either donate or they can volunteer. Uh, I know that there's a, an, an angry, silent majority out there that l- are looking to reach out and that's how you're going to reach us easier, NPA 
www.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca